Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any info on our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. So we're in this series on, uh, we're in this series, uh, Home Life, and we've been talking about work life, home life. Uh, we're going to touch also on church life. It's really all of life. And uh, before we pray and get into this message, I, I just sensed this week as I was getting ready for this one, uh, there's, certain, there, there's certain truths we've talked about in this series so far that I just want to make sure we don't ever forget. Uh, I really don't want to just, uh, gla- and particularly one, I'm going to put it up on the PowerPoint again, and then we're going to pray. Um, but uh, this truth that we've talked about now a number of times over the last month, the fact that uh, you are doing ministry, okay? You guys are doing ministry when you go to work and do a good job is really important for us as Christians to grab a hold of. And it's so easy in the church because the church is where we kind of talk about ministry it's very easy to lose sight of that truth so that you think that the only time you're doing ministry is when you're in church. So a lot of people, Christians, kind of just, and it's not that, you know, most pastors would ever teach that, but it's just sort of something that kind of gets given off that uh, the only time when I hear the word ministry is when I'm at church, and you almost start to get this idea that I'm only doing ministry when I'm at cell or when I'm serving in some kind of church ministry or when I'm in the building or whatever it is. And yes, all of those are very important. All of those are ministry. But most of you here uh, are not like me. You don't get paid to be here in the church. Your main ministry is not here in the church, most of you. It is out there. And we need to have our eyes open to that. It's one of the big things I wanted to do in this series was that we would have our eyes open to the fact that, that the vast majority of you guys are called to a whole life of ministry, not just your volunteer time around the church. And I think that's really important, and I'm praying that that's going to really sink in. And so now, before we jump into the rest of this message now, I'd ask that you just bow your heads and close your eyes, and let's uh, pray to Jesus. And Lord Jesus, I thank you. I thank you that your calling on our lives is so much bigger than just what happens inside these church walls. Uh, You are calling us to advance your kingdom, not just inside these walls. You're actually calling us to advance your kingdom uh, outside these walls, to shine your light to the people all around us, where we work and play, where we do our hobbies, where we live and in our neighborhoods. And Jesus, today I pray that you would lift another burden of condemnation off of our shoulders and that you would give us hope in the calling that you have for all of us. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. We are called to bring Jesus out into the world. Now, at the end of this message, I'm going to start talking about something that's going to come up now a a lot in the next one. I'm going to talk about a rhythm of life. And uh, why many of us are unable to be joyful out in the world, okay? But in order to get there, I want to first uh, look in John 17, and I want to look at this truth that we are called to bring Jesus out into the world, not just stay safe with Jesus inside our church walls. And uh, this is really important in terms of how Jesus thinks about your life and and your calling in life. Uh, John 17, verse 14, I'm going to read you uh, a few verses here. And this is a really important prayer that Jesus prays just before he goes to die on the cross. And he starts off by saying this, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So Jesus says, you know, essentially the world is a hostile place, okay? It's actually hostile for non-Christians as well in many cases. There's a lot of tough things in the world, a lot of bad things in the world. But Jesus specifically here says in his prayer 
that it will certainly be hostile for Christians simply because the world rejects Jesus. So the world was a hostile place to Jesus, and as a result, when you are a follower of Jesus, it will often be hostile to us as well. That's what he starts his prayer with, okay? Now, what he prays next is really fascinating to me, okay? Then he goes on, very next verse, and he says, I do not ask. Now, that's interesting. He actually explicitly prays a prayer telling the Father what he's not asking, okay? Interesting. I don't know if you've ever done that in a prayer time and said, rather than just telling God the things you want, actually telling him the things that you don't want, okay? But Jesus explicitly Praise a prayer here to the Father, and, and just pay attention. Let's just sit here for just a little bit. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. I do not ask that. Explicitly, Jesus says, I do not want to rescue my followers from having to live in that world that is hostile. He just talked about in the first couple of verses, it's going to be hostile to my followers, but I do not ask that you take them out of it. And interestingly, he lived that, okay, because after he rose from the dead, he could have just scooped up his disciples and gone back to heaven, and he didn't, okay? So, I mean, as a parent, I've thought about this verse lots over the last couple of years, just in terms of the fact that Jesus is not an overprotective parent. Isn't that true? I mean, sometimes I think as parents, uh, we actually do too much overprotecting. You look at Jesus, and he explicitly says, the world is a hostile place, and yet I'm not asking that you take them out of the world. In fact, he says, I'm not going to bring them to heaven, which means that he is specifically has left us behind for a reason. And yes, he's looking forward to coming back and living with us and setting up his kingdom on earth. But the fact that you and I are still on this earth is an explicit choice and prayer that Jesus made. He didn't want to just take us out of this world. He actually wants you and I to be in this world. There's a purpose for us being here, okay? Now he goes on and he says, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So this is important as well. So Jesus says, and we're going to look in verse 17. That's going to take us a few minutes because I'm going to stop here and we're going to think about some things for a bit. But in verse 17, he's going to specifically say he's sending us out into the world, okay? But here he says, I have explicitly and purposely prayed and chosen to leave my followers out in this hostile world. And one of the things they're supposed to be is they're supposed to be different. They're supposed to be in the world. I'm purposely leaving them there and praying that they not come out. But they are not of the world. They are literally supposed to be in it, but they are supposed to be different. And this is, at its foundation, one of the key callings of being a follower of Jesus. Too many of us, I think, as Christians are trying to escape completely out of the world. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. If I wanted you out of the world, I would take you to heaven already. I actually want you in the world, and explicitly, I want you in the world so that you can actually be different, which will shine the light of Jesus into that world. It is specifically by being different. Now, when I say being different, being not of the world... There's good ways and there's bad ways to be different. Isn't that true? Now, I think as a lot of Christians, I think we have the wrong idea of what it means to be different for Jesus. I think a lot of us have the wrong idea of what it means to be a testimony for Jesus and to shine for Jesus, okay? And I put myself in this. I remember, you know, when I was tree planting, when I worked in a factory and different things, I remember my own work experiences before I was in the church. And I know so often how it was easy for me to think or how many Christians think is this idea, you ask a Christian, are you a good testimony at work? 
And I've, I've had this conversation in various forms, not exact words, but various forms with many Christians. And you know what is often our response? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm a light in my workplace. I don't get drunk on the weekends and I don't swear. Okay? Now, first of all, that's great. Let me just affirm you. Don't get drunk. That is important. That's a sin. Yes. The Bible says it clearly, Ephesians. Okay? Drunkenness is not good for Christians to, to engage in. Swearing and uh, filthy talk, not good for Christians to engage in. That is all true. We should be different in those areas. But guess what? When, all, when your whole testimony consists of what you don't do, you're not actually shining a light for Jesus. You're just not being dark. Does that make sense? And the calling on us as Christians is not to just not be dark. It's not just go out and don't be more darkness. The calling on us as Christians is actually to shine the light of Jesus into the world. Now, the vast majority of people are not attracted to Jesus because of what you don't do. Okay? People don't get up in the morning and go, I want to be a Christian because they don't drink and they don't swear. The fact of the matter is, before people come to Jesus, they many of them, not all, certainly not all of them, but some of them, anyway, uh, they want to get drunk. So you not wanting to get drunk doesn't attract them to Jesus. So to shine for Jesus, great. Don't do bad things. But on a positive, we need to actually shine who Jesus actually is, not just what he isn't. So now we've talked about some of those qualities here in this series already, and working hard, and working with integrity, and all that sort of stuff. I just want to put up, and these are certainly not exhaustive, but just to get our minds thinking a little bit, you have been left on this earth for a purpose. You are supposed to be in that job that you're in. You're supposed to have the, you know, and I'm not saying that God likes all the struggles and stuff that you have, but the fact that there are difficult people all around you where you work and in your family shouldn't be like some big surprise, like, why do I have such a tough life? Why are there so many bad people around me? The reason you're there is because Jesus keeps saying, that's why you're there. I specifically prayed that you wouldn't be able to just come out of all of that because I, those people need to see the light of Jesus in the middle of them. So what kind of qualities shine the light of Jesus into this world, okay? So positive qualities that actually shine the light of Jesus in the world. I'll tell you one of the number one qualities that shines the light of Jesus into our dark world, and that is joy. There isn't a person on this earth that doesn't crave more joy. Doesn't matter whether you're a Christian, doesn't matter whether you're a non-Christian. Our bodies, physiologically and physically, and in every which way, the way your brain is wired, you were wired to desire joy. It's going to be one of the greatest gifts when Jesus returns to, to, to earth and we get our resurrected bodies is that we're going to experience joy all the time, never ending at levels we've never even imagined. If you want to know how to attract people to Jesus, it's going to take a lot more than just not getting drunk. When you go to work every day and you consistently, it doesn't mean that you're every day you know, necessarily feeling chipper, but when they can see that there is a level in, of joy in you that the world doesn't offer that makes them want Jesus. That's a testimony. Now, some of you might be sitting here and you go, well, I don't know how to have joy. You might have, first of all, uh, Christians, just like non-Christians, can suffer with mental illness and depression and those sorts of things. When I say joy, I don't say it as a legalistic thing, like now you've got to feel guilty because you don't have joy. There might be reasons why you can't have joy. There might be health issues or various things that contribute, you know, to various emotional things. This is not a guilt thing. 
Okay? If you can't do it, God knows what you can and what you can't do. But for the rest of us, if you don't have joy just because you don't have joy, joy should actually be near the top of your prayer list. And by the way, don't you want it anyway? Like, I think that's what all of us want. You want to pray for a good prayer quest? Pray and seek joy. Say, Jesus, I want to grow in joy. And that's not something he's going to necessarily answer right overnight. But that he can take you on a, on a journey of dealing with your sins, dealing with past wounds, and growing in joy. That's something that attracts people to Jesus in the workplace. Especially the more unjoyful your workplace is, the more you bring that kind of godly joy into your workplace, the more you shine for Jesus. Second quality that shines for Jesus is the quality of selflessness. When you consistently make decisions at work and with your business that shows that you actually for real, not just with your mouth, but with your actions, show that you actually put other people above yourself. That actually shines. That shines huge. The world doesn't behave that way. A third thing that shines is over and above integrity. We've talked about this one before already in this series. I'm not going to go into depth, but when you show integrity, even at the cost of your own benefit, that shines. Anybody can show integrity when it's easy. But when you show integrity, even when it hurts, that shines. When you put the interests of other people ahead of yourself, even when it hurts you, that shines. You want to know something else that shines for people? Grace. Grace. And I put their out-of-this-world grace because this world doesn't know grace. Heavenly grace. Where you forgive, where you try to assume the best, where you try to feel things from another point of view, okay, that's grace. Now, when I say the word grace, I know grace is like a kind of a spiritual word that we don't use in the regular world, usually. And so we think of it as a spiritual word. So many Christians would think you'd be sitting here listening to this message and you'd think, oh yeah, I have grace for people. And what that means is you have a theology of grace, which means that if somebody at work said, can I be forgiven of any of my sins? You would happily tell them, yes, you can. That's not grace, okay? That's the theology of grace. That's grace from Jesus, and we should definitely tell people about it. Amen. But that's not grace. You know what grace is? Grace is something that you can only personally show when somebody screws up. You can't show grace when somebody hasn't messed up. Isn't that true? You're not showing grace. You're not showing grace at work when everything's going fine. You're not showing grace at home when the guy you paid to do the renovations does a perfect job and charges you less than you thought he would. That's not grace, okay? I'll tell you what grace is. Now you can start to see where I'm going. Grace is when you got that guy to do basement renovations and he did a bad job and charged you more than you thought he was going to charge. Grace is that, that's when you have an opportunity to show grace because at that moment, you can lose your marbles, you can yell and scream, you can demand all kinds of things. And in that moment, you might not be doing something explicitly sinful, but you are not showing grace. In fact, in that moment, you are doing exactly what everybody else in the world does which doesn't shine Jesus' light. It just shows that Christians are no different than anybody else. Now, guess what? Jesus didn't leave us here on earth to be the same as everybody else. Jesus didn't leave us here on earth 
so we could just lose our marbles just like everybody else. When something goes wrong at work, I cut people down, I go yelling, I da da da, I do all this sort of stuff. That's not grace. I talked to a, a, a business person just recently. I've actually had a few stories like this. I, I wish I could share more of them. Some of them maybe too recent and different things, but I, I talked with a business person recently and I, I was just asking questions. I was just enjoying hearing some of the stories and how God was moving in his life because this is one of those business people who sees his, mini, his, his business as a ministry. And it came up just in passing. He was telling me the story of how uh, someone he had got to do some work for him had... Uh, way overcharged him on something. And so I, I was like, oh, that's interesting. Someone from outside the church. And uh, thankfully, too often it's people inside the church. Yuck. Anyway. Um, so I asked him, what did he do? He said, well, I talked to him and I told him the truth. He said, I think this is absolutely ridiculous. And when the guy didn't change his mind, I said, so what did you do? He said, I paid him. And you guys all sit there going, oh my, where's the, there's got to be a different punchline than that. <laughs> like, surely he didn't just pay him. That's stupid. Is it? You say, that's not fair. The world, the world of business doesn't work on those principles. You are right. You're right. The world doesn't work. A business doesn't work on those principles. And Jesus didn't leave here to be of the world. He said, they are not of the world. And the second thing is also true, that it isn't fair. It isn't fair for them because they don't have Jesus on their side to take care of them. You know the biggest reason I think that many of us can't, are afraid to actually be different is because we don't trust Jesus to take care of us when we have to do the radical things Jesus calls us to do. So you say, well, again, like, this can't actually be what God is calling us to. Well, let's look at what Paul says. We're going to go back to John 17. I just want to take a little, because how does work become ministry anyway? It doesn't become ministry until it's different than what the world is doing. Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? So, the Corinthian church was having a problem that, by the way, has been had in every church pretty much since. Business people within the church were taking advantage of each other and didn't like each other. I know that except this church. I know it never happens in this church. All of you who are in business here love everybody else who's in business in this church. That's one of the things I love about this church. <laughs> Verse 5. I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Paul says when two Christians are fighting over money, he says it doesn't matter who wins because already they're both losing. When two Christians fight in business, it doesn't matter who wins. They're both already losing in something far more important than business, and that is the kingdom of God. And you say, yeah, but he started it. You know, they messed up my renovations. They didn't do what the contract said. Their numbers are totally wrong. Okay, that's fair. Unfair things happen. So what does Paul say we should do when unfair things happen in business? 
Here's what he says. Straight out of business school. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. You know what Paul's point here is? When the interests of building your business collide with the interests of Jesus' kingdom, the interest, there's only one way for your business and your job to be a ministry, and that is for Jesus' kingdom to win out. Now, I know before I go back to what this message is really about, I know some of you are just going to write this off as, you know, the naive preaching of a guy who's not in business. And there's no question, I'm not in business, so I don't understand that world. Now, first of all, however, though, I would say in my defense, really you're not talking about me being naive when I preach this, you're talking about the Apostle Paul being naive because this is the Word of God, okay? But nonetheless, I know that some here will think to themselves, that doesn't work in the real world because what you think is that Paul is preaching here that in order to shine your light for Jesus, you have to be a pushover. And that's not what this verse is saying. And so I just have to take a moment and just look at that. I just want to prove to you that this doesn't mean being a pushover. I don't want to show you what it actually looks like. It also does not mean that it is never, ever okay for a Christian to go to court. I actually don't believe that. I actually believe the Bible allows for people to go to court. There are, there are exceptional circumstances where, that, where it can lead to that. And I believe our court system uh, here in Canada is a gift. I believe that it's endowed with authority uh, from God. And I think there are complicated situations where you need a court to, to, to sort things out. Okay? So I'm not saying anybody here who's ever been to court is bad, and I don't think that is what Paul is trying to say either. Okay? However, he is saying something serious that very few Christian, whether it be business people or marketplace leaders or even just regular employees or someone who's having work done on their basement or yard or whatever, rarely think about before they start losing their minds. We rarely prayerfully ask the question, would it actually be better to suffer wrong in this case for the kingdom of Jesus? So what does it mean to apply these passages without being a pushover? Well, here's what it means. Let me just put a few things up there. This does not mean you have to be a pushover. First of all, when someone does something wrong to you or unfair, okay, you should certainly not just ignore it. That doesn't take any courage. Ignoring it just makes you bitter on the inside and will leave you talking to everybody else instead of the person who caused the problem. Don't put your hand up, but I wonder how many of us have talked about somebody else this week without having the courage to go and talk to the person themselves. That fails to be a light on the earth as well. So when you talk badly about someone else, first think to yourself, have I talked to the person? And that is certainly true in this case too. If someone wrongs you, if they mess up on the work they were supposed to do on your yard, or if they mess up on a contract or your business partners or whatever, they do something wrong, ignoring it is not the answer. The first step is go to them personally and tell them the truth. Start with the truth. Start with a conversation. Now, you, I, you'll see in brackets there, respectfully. I don't know how many of you have realized this. If you're married, hopefully you've realized this. If you've been married for any length of time, it's not just what you say, it is what, how you say it. Yes, is that true? 
You can say good words, and you can say them in a bad way, and your good words are a waste. Okay? Um, you need to say it with a tone. So too many of us go in with guns blazing. Often it starts with an email, which is almost, or a text, which is almost impossible to control or get the tone right, unless you do tons and tons of emojis, which I am doing more and more of. I used to make fun of emojis. I love them now. Uh, but when you just send that one-line text in your anger, you will not get the tone right. And right in that, you might say, well, I'm just doing what Chris said. I'm just starting with the truth. Again, it really doesn't matter what I say. It really matters what the Bible says. And the Bible says, go and talk to the person. That's what it says in Matthew 18. You have to get the tone right, which brings me up to the second thing, which is this, okay? Assume, okay? Start by assuming, this is really important, give them the benefit of the, dr- of the doubt. Before you assume that they're evil, because that's what we do when we lose our minds. The reason you're losing your mind with so-and-so is because you've already assumed they got up in the morning and their one goal was to take you to the cleaners. You know, one of the things, the more people are, there are people who are in their behavior and motives are outright evil, but they're pretty rare, actually. You know, it's been an interesting experience I get to have as pastor. Uh, I get to hear people sometimes come to me from both sides of the story, and I always tell them the same thing, or at least I try to always. Perhaps I, I mess up sometimes. I always tell people, have you talked to them? But someone will come to me and tell me a story, and usually I like it if you don't share details. So I'm even helping you now with how you share with me. But they come to me and they want to complain about situation A, and they want to complain about person B. And when you just listen to their side of the story, person B looks really, really bad. Always, that's how it happens. You know what I've been amazed at? Many times, person B won't take long, and they'll come and see me as well. And when you hear it from their point of view, it sure looks a lot different. Now, how is that possible? Because this was the objective truth over here. Person B is an absolute demon-possessed, hypocritical Christian (laughs) who clearly loves to, you know, do horrible things to people. But then you hear it from person B, and you go, whoa, this is a little more complicated than I thought. You know why that is? Because very few of you, and actually very few of the people even out in the world, are actually outright evil in the sense that they get up in the morning and they actually want to do evil things. So maybe next time when you're losing your mind over something, the guy who messed up on your basement or your yard or your car or your business or whatever, Maybe next time, instead of starting by going in with guns blazing, you go to him and start by giving him the benefit of the doubt, and you talk to them with a tone that gives them a way out. Like, help me understand. Like, what I'm seeing here with what you did with the drywall in the basement doesn't totally make sense to me, but maybe it's just me. Can you help me understand? Right? And you use that kind of language. Can you help me understand this? Like, this seems unfair to me. I thought we had a deal. This is what I thought and you give them the benefit of the doubt, and you try to see things from their perspective. Does this sound different than how the world acts? It actually, unfortunately, sounds different than how a lot of Christians act, too. Jesus didn't leave you here on earth to be the same. And lastly, let's say they don't listen to reason for whatever various reasons. This is where negotiation comes in, and you explain to them clearly what you think is right and fair. 
Don't leave the meeting without saying, this is what I think is right and fair. I think you need to do X, Y, and Z. And you negotiate and you talk and you hear their side and you explain clearly to them what you think is the right thing. Have you even thought it through? Many of us blow up without actually even thinking exactly what we want done. Maybe I should have put as a first thing before I start with the truth is maybe A should actually be wait a day. Talk to your wife or husband. Cool off, then start with the truth. Now you say, well, what happens at the end of that if they're still going to be a jerk? Because this is not about being a pushover. But what happens at the end of that if they still want to be a jerk? Next step is open up your Bible to 1 Corinthians 7 to 8 and prayerfully consider, is this one of those cases? Is a few hundred dollars or even a few thousand dollars actually worth that much to me? that I might permanently give someone a bad taste or other people who are watching this situation a bad taste about Jesus Christ? That might actually be a good next step. And after that, maybe your situation is such that there might occasionally have to be some kind of legal stuff or it might have to go further. Even when you pursue those things, pursue it in a way realizing that people are watching you as a Christian to see what Jesus is like. And the world is not looking for more of the world. The world needs to see people who are radically different so that they will want to give their lives to Jesus. That's why you've been left here on earth, which brings us back to, okay, John 17. You have been sent out into the world. Verse 17, John says this, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, God sent Jesus into the world to what? die. You ever thought that he's also sent us into the world, maybe not to physically die at the hands of the world, but to die in terms of certain desires, in certain rights? Jesus died, and that's how he made a difference. Maybe it's you dying in some of those deals that is what is necessary for God to bring salvation to many people. As you have sent me into the world, God sent him to die. So, same way I have sent them into the world to die for me, he says, and shine for you. Each one of us, you don't have to be a pastor, you don't have to be a missionary, you don't have to go to Africa to be sent. You don't have to go to Asia to be sent. Every Christian, by the moment you gave your life to Jesus, the moment you gave your life to Jesus and Jesus decided again with yet another Christian, I'm not bringing them to heaven right away, that moment you were sent You were sent to go back into your family, to go back into your factory, to go back into your business, to go back into whatever, and live that place as a shining light for Jesus. Different in every way from the world. Which really brings up then, where does the church fit into all this? Because the church's role is not to keep, but to send. Okay, and this is important as we begin to talk about rhythm. Okay? The church's role is not for us to be so much inside these walls that we can't be outside. Again, if Jesus just wanted us safe, he would have taken us to heaven, but he didn't. Which means he also doesn't want us so much in church that we can't be out being a light. Okay, so what is the place of the church? Well, 
We also need the church, right? Hebrews 10, 24 to 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Actually, the church is here. We get together. We stir each other up to be a light to go out. Let us consider how to stir one another up. That's what's supposed to happen when you go to a small group. That's what's supposed to happen when you come to church here. We're dealing with our own junk. We want to grow in our character. We're touching Jesus. We're trying to grow in love so that we can go out and be stirred up in good works, works that shine, works that are different than what the world would expect. Not neglecting to meet together. Now, here's the thing. It's almost like a charging station. If you, if you completely neglect the church and don't connect into the body, he says, your light's going to dim. You're not going to last. The battery's going to run low. You say, yeah, but I just want to connect to Jesus and, and charge directly with him. And, and the writer of Hebrews already knows that excuse was already being made in his day. And he says, actually, the way Jesus has made it is you're not meant to just connect to him yourself. You actually need the body. You need the body of Christ. And if you don't plug in, I would say weekly, in some kind of corporate worship setting, then of course, that's why we do small groups, but some kind of small group setting where you can share and be vulnerable and pray for each other and push each other to grow in character. If there's not that regular meeting together then the light is going to dim. So not neglecting to meet together is the habit of somebody encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. But now once that has been done and you've been charged up, it's actually possible to be at church too much. I can't even believe you're telling me that on a Sunday morning. I am telling you that. It is actually possible to be at church too much because you were called out into the world. Now, of course, there's different callings of many different people. Some people are called to serve more inside the walls, discipling kids or doing various things or helping with things in the ministry here so that other people who are called to go out can come back and recharge and get discipled and go out. So there's a both end. People are called to different levels. But I just want to introduce the concept to your mind that many of you would never even have considered, which is it, it, it is actually possible to be too much inside. And then you cannot be outside being a light, which brings us to this whole idea of rhythm. This idea that I really want to explore over the next while in this series, which is, I think there's many reasons why a lot of Christians don't bring their joy and their light out into the world, out into the workplace. Okay, I think there's a lot of reasons for it. We can't oversimplify. I think one big one is many of us have absolutely no idea how to live a godly rhythm of life all we know how to do is be, for many of us, not all of us, some of us, is how to be busy, 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 busy. And then we wonder why we can't live up to our ideals. We hear a message about being a light at work. We all, most of us would agree with that, I think, right off the bat. Yes, we want to be a light at work. Many of us lack the strength to do it. We lack the joy to do it. Part of the reason we lack the joy is because we have no idea how to recharge. And our rhythm of life is so out of whack that it's actually impossible to have joy. But we've over-spiritualized it, and we just think, I just need to pray more. Well, in some cases, more prayer might be the answer. But in some cases, God's saying, you're already praying enough. The problem is you never rest. The problem is you've got too much of some of these good things. You've got too much work. You've got too much church. You've got too much activity. You're just go, 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 go. And the human body wasn't made to do that. And the book of Ecclesiastes really hits this in a number of places. And I, that's where I want to spend the last part of this message now is in one of these passages. It's Ecclesiastes chapter 4. And Ecclesiastes chapter 4 talks about this rhythm 
Okay? And it starts by talking about the need for work. So it starts with this, verse 5, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Okay, ooh, wow. That is hyperbole in the Bible again. For those of you who think every word of the Bible should be taken as a literal statement, this is another example of why it shouldn't. You have to understand it the way the writer meant it. Okay? It's not true that a lazy person actually eats his own flesh. What it is true is that a person who does not work It's actually destructive to the soul. If you get enough people who don't work and who are lazy, it's actually destructive to the community. It's destructive to the family. It can bring poverty, but it can bring so much more to the soul. Now, again, I always have to put in the caveats because in a church like ours, there's always exceptions to every rule. There's people who can't work, physical issues, mental health issues, those sorts of things. If you can't work, okay, or age or whatever it is, this is not condemnation. Okay, But the point is, the human soul, the human body was made to be useful. And the moment a human being stops feeling useful, it actually starts to destroy you on the inside. So yeah, maybe you can't work because of various things, or your capacity for work is very low, but what can you do with the capacity you do have? Can you pray for people? Can you write notes of encouragement? Can you do menial administrative tasks? Can you paint? Can you make music? Find something. Even with the small capacity you have, don't feel guilty about what you can't do. Take what you can do and try to be useful with something. When your life loses any form of usefulness, a human being starts to die on the inside. That's what Ecclesiastes says. But now, look what it says next. And now we get this tension. The very next verse he says something else opposite. He looks at the opposite end of the spectrum. This is what he says next. So it's bad to not work, but then he says this, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. There's the other side of this, which is someone who is just busy, 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 busy. And I would put activities onto this along with work, because in our culture today, they they wouldn't have known that kind of thing in Solomon's day. Their culture was very different. They didn't have the amount of leisure time that we have today. So it might not just be that you're working all your hours at actual work, but you might work many hours at work, but then every evening you might have other things that you're just busy with. They might be very good things. Again, it might even include some church activities and some kids' activities and various things, but you're just go, 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 go all the time. And again, some people have different capacities. Some people are just wired to do more of that. Some people are wired to do less. But nobody was wired to go all the time. And Solomon actually says, better to have a handful of quietness than just to have your life go by and you never stop to actually enjoy it. You never actually stop to do something non-productive and just be human and look around and kind of enjoy life. Better Better to have stops in your life. Better a handful of quietness than that kind of busyness. Then he goes on to say this. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. Overbusyness is a killer. It's one of the big reasons why so many people are stressed. 
And again, I put over busyness instead of overwork. You, your work, actual work hours might be right in the spot they need to be, but you've added on so much other stuff, much of it because you're comparing yourself to everybody else, and you're comparing your kids to everybody else, and you're comparing yourself to everybody else, and all of that vanity that you've added so many things to your life, and then there's a reason why you can't shine for Jesus, and there's a reason you can't kick your social media addiction, it's because you have no rest in your life. You have no emotional reserves, and you're exhausted. And then he says this, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, but instead of riches, we could put in there, satisfied with whatever it is you're trying to accumulate. The super kids you're trying to build, the super life you're trying to build, the super what business you're trying to build, whatever it is that you're trying to accumulate, okay? Said he never asks, for whom am I toiling? Okay, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches. Said he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? I love that he uses the word pleasure. This is in the inspired word of God. Did you know that it's actually important for human beings to stop and have fun as a regular important piece of life to do non-productive things? And then he says, all that busyness and being productive, at a certain point, every human being needs to be busy and be productive, but at a certain point, a good thing becomes a terrible thing and he says it actually all becomes vanity and an unhappy business. And I think part of this stress that stresses our home life and stresses our lives and leads to all kinds of addiction, because you're, and, and, and specifically media addiction and phone addictions, in, in many cases are driven by this emptiness of soul, that our brains are actually just exhausted with life and finally, you have no energy to do anything that's truly restful. And so you just go to mind numbing. I actually get it why so many people would be there. And then you feel guilty because you feel like Jesus is mad at you because you're wasting so much time on your phone. And Jesus is saying, let's not look at the phone first. Let's start with all the things that are accumulating in your life that are making you go there. A person at the end of a marathon doesn't go and do a bunch of productive things. They are you often exhausted and they just want to lie down. And it's a vanity and it's an unhappy business. And I think some of it is fed by a wrong picture of God. I think a lot of us have a picture of God that God is always productive. That everything God does, that every moment of my day should be productive in some sense and Lots of your days should be productive. That's great. But we have this idea that every day of mine should be productive because of God's great purpose in things. And if I serve God, every part of my day will be productive. And God goes, ha! I don't think, I'm convinced in fact, that not everything God does is about productivity. And I'm also convinced that God does lots of things that don't have something to do with some great overarching purpose. He does them just because they're fun. And some of you, that almost seems like sacrilegious, which shows that I'm touching on something of what we have a picture of God. But let me just first tell you, there is not a single Bible verse in here that says that everything God does has to be about some big purpose. Lots of things he does are serious, and lots of things he does have to do with these great purposes he's working. But no verse in here says that God always is like that. And I'll tell you why I think he isn't. 
I think there are lots of things in nature that show us God is not always serious and trying to be productive. Would you like to see some pictures of some of the animals? And we'll just look at animals. There's many other examples I could show you that God has made. And if God has made them, what can we learn from some of these animals? Would, would you like to see some pictures? Ken and Sarah, put up the first one. This is an eye-eye. He has a very long middle finger, not for signaling to his compatriots when they <laughs> drive poorly. It's for grabbing bugs out of the inside of a tree trunk. Okay? And, and just look at him. What a weird-looking thing. But he has a cousin that will make you laugh, okay? And I think, I think this cousin uh, that God laughs, can you put up the cousin there? This is his cousin. Do you think God was thinking to himself, I want to do something great when he made this thing? I think he was literally laughing his head off, okay? This next one, I mean, that looks like some people I know. Uh, no, looks like me in the morning. Uh, that's a garabuck. Why? Why would he make this animal to, to, to be like that, right? Okay, this next one is a, a personal favorite of mine. It's called a, a Gobi Jerboa. He's part kangaroo, part mouse, part I don't know what that tail is, okay? Now, literally, I want you to ask yourself the question, why would God make an animal like this? Now, any animal expert would very quickly, you know, want to protest what I'm saying right now. They would say, the Gobi Jerboa fits some very special niche in sort of the ecological life cycle. And I don't doubt that it does. Obviously, all life has to fit into this cycle. But I'll tell you right now, when God made this animal, he did not, he did not say, this is absolutely necessary for my plans. And I know that's true because if the Gobi Jerboa went extinct tomorrow, as sad as that would be for all of us, the universe would not cease and we would not all die. Is that not true? It's true. I mean, it's sad when animals go extinct, but many animals go extinct all the time and life on planet Earth does not cease to exist. So this is not a cornerstone to God's plan, okay? I got another one to, to show you, just this next one. Oh, ha. that's a quokka. Go to the next one. That's very, how can you not be happy when you like the way? Look at this. Now, I see one of my nephews laughing right now because uh, he knows uh, myself and my boys and my nephews uh, like to say the name of this animal as often as we possibly can. It is called a naked mole rat, okay? And I think they are like it most because of the word naked. But anyway, uh, think seriously about this animal for just a moment. What do you learn about God when you look at this animal? See, generally, we only think of God when we look at the stars. But did the same God that make the stars also make this? What does that tell you about God? I'll tell you one of the things that speaks to me. He does a lot of things out of the box. And he's not always serious. He's not always serious. One more. And this is, this is me if I was a fox, okay? <laughs> Can you... Can you imagine watching this thing prancing through the grass? Like, that is just, that's awesome. Um, 
And do you know that they, they estimate now, I was, I was reading a, an article the other day, very fascinating even how they come to these numbers. It's, it's fascinating how many smart people God has created. But they now estimate, and they have good reasons to believe this is a good estimate, that there are 8.7 million different kinds of species. Not 8.7 million different animals, far, far, far more than that. But there are 8.7 million different species of animals and insects on the earth right now. 8.7 million species. Think about the overwhelming creativity of God. Why? He wouldn't even need to make that many species. He just wouldn't. You know what the crazy thing is? 8.7 million, that's how many species are alive today. They estimate it's probably only 1% of all the species of animals and insects that have ever lived because of all the ones that have gone extinct already that we find in fossil records and stuff. It's quite possible that the number of different species over time that God has throughout the, the, you know, the history of the earth created is somewhere around 900 million different species. What does that tell you about God? I'll tell you what it tells me. There's a lot of things he does just for the fun of it. Most of those species have, will never be viewed by a human being. I mean, they've long gone, come and gone. Will never be studied by a human being. Will never get anybody saved. Have no purpose in terms of our current life cycle on the earth. Why did God make them all? Just because he can. Just because it was fun. The universe is so big. There are massive swaths. It's for all intents and purposes almost infinite compared to us as human beings. There are vast swaths that we will never be able to see, that we will never experience, that we will never explore. That's how big the universe is. And yet God knows every square inch of some of those trillions of planets and stars and galaxies. Why did he make it all? Just for his own fun. There's a side to God, and I want to use the word wasteful for a second because it's not a word we usually use. There's a side of God that is almost wastefully generous and creative just because he can. So what does that tell us about God, and what does that then tell us about being made in the image of God as human beings? It tells us we should pay attention to Ecclesiastes. When Ecclesiastes says the point of your life isn't to be productive every moment of your day. And if you try to be productive every single moment of your day all the time, you're going to burn out and your light is going to dim. You actually need a rhythm of life that includes laughter and stopping and sometimes wasting time doing things just for the sake of doing them because they're fun. You wouldn't want a whole life like that because that also is a waste. But you need that as a human being, just like you need purpose in work and ministry and all those sorts of things. You need all of it. And when you get too busy with some of these other good things that you can't have some of these good things, you actually cease to be fully human the way God made you. So, some questions. We're not going to answer all of these this week. We're certainly not going to answer all of them in this message. As we end this message now, I want to plant some seeds in your mind as we're going through this series Questions we need to start asking ourselves. Just to start taking stock. This is not a homework assignment, although if you want to take a picture of the questions, you can. Ken and Sarah, if you could put that up there. But here's some questions that I want us to start thinking about. How many hours a week do you work? Some of you know this already. It's obvious to you because you work an hourly job. You punch in, you punch out. It's easy. Lots of people, though, don't know how much time is actually spent at work. 
And again, not all of us should spend the same amount of time at work. There's different callings, different capacities, different seasons. This is not about comparing. But do you even know how much time you spend at work? I think for a lot of leaders, in many cases, they don't. They might think one thing, their spouse might think another. How many hours do you spend at work? How many hours a week are you doing church stuff? So we saw in Hebrews 10, you need to connect in the church. We need to minister to each other. We need to disciple. But do you know how many hours you're doing church stuff? Because it's possible to have too much of a good thing in an already busy life. How many hours a week you spend doing kids' activities? But you're out of the home. How many evenings a week, you know, whether if you're married and have a family with, are you actually home with your family? If you're single, at your home, you know, with friends or something? Do you ever have time like that? How many hours do you sleep a night? That's not a spiritual question. That's a, that's a, you know, that's one of those, you know, these newfangled things like Christians. We don't worry about things like sleep. That might be one of the reasons you don't have the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Do an experiment. Go a week with sleeping almost none at all, and then go a week where you sleep enough and see which one you have more of the fruit of the Spirit in. Maybe the Holy Spirit also works through your sleep. You know, there's a lot of science on this. By the way, you want to talk about spiritual? Why did God make us to sleep in the first place? That actually should tell us something about God and something about ourselves. If God wanted you to just go, 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 go all the time, he would have made you not to need sleep. But have you ever stopped to think that he made the human body? There are many, many scientific studies on this now. And of course, we don't lay down rules at all. We do not lay down rules at all on this. There's nothing in the Bible that says how much you should sleep. But there's lots of science that says the vast majority of people, and there will be outliers, but the vast majority of people actually need, in order to fully function in a healthy way, need seven to eight hours of sleep a night. Why on earth? Think about what that tells us about God and about ourselves. That he would give us 24 hours in a day and then make your body so weak that you would need to sleep for one-third of the time you're here on the earth. What does that tell you about God? It tells me that he doesn't think or want you to be able to do everything. And in fact, your eyes, just like the eyes of some teenage boys when they sit down at a meal and their eyes are so big and they just fill their plate, right? And it might just be over the top and can they actually finish it? Your eyes, in terms of your desires of all the good things you want to do and accomplish in your life, might actually be too big. And God says, actually, I didn't make you that amazing. <laughs> You're just not that amazing. And that's why I made you to need sleep. Now, of course, there might be people here, you might be a biological freak and you only need five hours a night. That's great. Roll with it. Or maybe, in some cases, you might be trying to do more than God's calling you to do. And you're just failing to trust him. And there are lots of cognitive things that they have found that people who consistently for many years don't get enough sleep, there's all kinds of cognitive things and emotional things that can happen in your life that actually aren't spiritual, they have to do with not resting enough. And again, this isn't a guilt trip. Some of, you, some of you will just feel guilty about anything I say. Oh, I feel so guilty, I'm not sleeping enough. Don't feel guilty about that. Take it as a release. Jesus, 
I'm going to work this fall on changing my schedule so I can try to get a bit more sleep. Might be a very spiritual thing for some of you to do. And might help you be a way better person at work. Which might point more people to Jesus. Do you have regular times of real rest? Do you have a weekly day of rest? Do you have annual times where you disconnect? Do you have times of play and fun and enjoyment that have nothing to do with being productive? All of these are part of a human life, part of a rhythm. It's not about trying to get a perfect balance. You'll notice I'm not using the word balance. I don't think we can ever be fully balanced. It's about having a rhythm. It's about going hard and then stopping and laughing, and going hard and then stopping and laughing and resting, and having daily, weekly, and annual rhythms. Well, I want you just to, well, before we pray, I just want to say one more thing here about comparing. This is not about guilt trips. This is not about uh, trying to do what everybody else is doing. This is the exact opposite of this. Everybody's at a different stage in life. Everybody has different personalities. Some are wired to be more externally busy. Some are wired to be less externally busy. The worst thing you can do is idolize somebody else. Do you know how much angst is in Christian people because of idolizing other people? Not that you worship other people. But we set up idols in our minds when we look at so-and-so and say, she's superwoman. Right? Ladies, when you see someone who, she just bakes the best stuff all the time for her family, and she's involved in this, and she's involved in that, and she's involved in this, and she's involved, and I'm just like, I can't get anything done, and she's just so amazing. Let me tell you some simple math. Nobody is superman, and nobody is superwoman, and the reason I know that is because everybody has the exact same amount of time every single week. We all have 168 hours in a week. So if Superwoman is busy with 50 things over here and you're coveting that you wish you could be more like her, just know that if she's doing 50 things over here that you're not doing, there's 50 things over here she's not doing. You just don't see them. You also don't get to see that she's wired that way to be busy in those areas and maybe not wired to be as good in some of these relational areas. And you don't see that she looks happy every time you see her at church or at cell, but you don't see her go home and dealing with unbelievable amounts of stress and anxiety and questioning herself and looking at you and envying you and your marriage or whatever it is. There's no such thing as Superman or Superwoman. So stop trying to be somebody else. You're a human being and Jesus wants to walk with you and he's an amazing God and we should be showing that to people with our lives. Which means living with a godly biblical rhythm. So the worship team is going to lead us in a song, but I want you to just bow your heads and close your eyes, and I want us just to meditate a little bit. Not making any massive life changes right now, right here in this place. No, 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 no. That's not the smart thing to do. It's not going to work anyway. But to start a train of thought, to start a train of conversation in our marriages and in our friendships as we drive home today, what does it mean to be a human being who properly reflects Jesus' glory here on earth.